I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Dr. Andrew Hill, founding director and lead neurotherapist at Peak Brain Institute. Dr. Hill, who suffered from ADHD when he was young, is one of the top brain performance coaches in the country. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology, and he continues to do research on attention and cognition. In addition to founding Peak Brain Institute, Dr. Hill is host of the Head First podcast with Dr. Hill, lead neuroscientist at True Brain and lectures at UCLA, teaching courses in psychology, neuroscience, neuroscience, and gerontology. And you can learn all about what Dr. Hill does in his work at peakbraininstitute.com. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's talk about the fact that at Peak Brain Health, that you actually train and retrain the ADHD brain and that medication is not a life sentence and required for people that have this condition. Yeah, for many people, neurofeedback will not only produce good executive function control, i.e. get rid of the ADHD effectively, but it will do so in such a way that your brain is permanently different. And in the absence of meds, your brain performs better later on than it did at the beginning on the medication. So let's just talk about meds for one brief minute. Does medication in any way actually fix ADHD? Uh, call not it. long term, right. no. It, I mean, long term, in fact, if you look at kids who are on uh, stimulant medication long term and then look at them as teenagers or adults, they, they did not learn the social things they needed to. The medication didn't help with um, self-esteem and other things which are lower because of the executive function problems. Um, all those core features were not addressed. It does help the kid manage the behavior, the adult manage the behavior in the moment, the impulsivity especially, um, while they are in the classroom or the boardroom, whatever it is. So there is some impact on the, on the moment-to-moment behavior, but it does not address the core problem, and the person does not learn to relate to their resources over time in any different way. So let me, because there's a, a lot in what you were just saying, and a lot that I knew what you were talking about that's underneath in terms of that ADHD, the, the management of it requires, it's multifactorial in terms of if you have it, you then also end up with self-esteem problems, anxiety problems, and being able to, to manage all these other elements. It's not just about the pill and the brain waves, that it's about right. the full exactly. human functionality and ability to be responsible and exist in society that you're really looking to work with. Right. So with medication, you're affecting the person's maybe behavior sitting in the chair in the classroom, but you aren't positively affecting their diet, their sleep regulation, their task and skill engagement, the scaffolding of their, their, of their existing resources against whatever challenges and demands they have. So none of that's taken care of, and that's what's necessary behaviorally to deal with ADHD. Uh, from a brain perspective, medication does not change it, and off the meds, you have no benefit uh, from having taken the meds. Uh, all the other ways you might want to deal with ADHD would have long-lasting benefits, be it meditation or mindfulness, which will change the brain, or neurofeedback, which will change the brain very rapidly. Um, so you, you get a physical change in your brain tissue and a reg regulatory change in how the brain works by doing things like neurofeedback. Um, and usually, again, uh, uh, along the way, we address lots of things, but off the medication later on, the performance is higher than it was at the beginning on the medication for most people. Yeah, and I love your perspective on it that I'm gonna call it ADHD is not a disease state. It's not broken. It's actually a brain that's optimized for a lot of quick stimulation. 
if you will, or a lot of paying attention yeah. to a lot of detail. So it's learning how to best channel that skill and craft. It is. And, and in somebody who's, who's really sort of tuned to use their resources in a high volume, high stimulus kind of rapid way and not necessarily use them in a heads down, low stimulus way. So the ADHD person that would be great as an athlete or a crisis worker potentially, but not so good at doing quality control on, you know, uh, um, on, a, on, a, on a line right. or sitting and even just like, you know, doing um, a spreadsheet work in a, in a, in a cubicle. Yeah. Those are not going to engage the ADHD brain because the brain is tuned to handle high stimulus, high stress, high danger, uh, new patterns to, to, to be the outlier, if you will, in terms of where the change is happening in the environment. Yeah. And I just, I keep harping on this point because it's such a flip. You know, we, we live in a world where a drug fixes a problem and that's the solution. And that this is not a problem that needs a drug. This is how does our body work? And that this is just learn, helping that, that human exist in the optimal way versus suppress a symptom. So exactly. And one nice thing about mindfulness or meditation or neurofeedback or other things that affect the resources is that you aren't simply um, making a change that is imposed from the outside and eliminating access. I mean, you put a kid on a stimulant who's got dramatic ADHD and they actually lose access to the quick, changeable, pattern matching, really rapid mind. And I hear this all the time from teens that don't want to lose access you know, to the, I can play video games for 20 hours straight. They don't want to lose that ability to be the fastest, quickest, smartest, funniest guy on the planet. They, but they don't necessarily want to have to be in that mode all the time. And so with things like mindfulness or neurofeedback, if you build the resource, you don't have control over being in that ADHD mode when it suits you, when you're playing video games or being an artist or being you know, very idea generation and switching out of that mode when it doesn't suit you in the classroom, the boardroom, whatever it is where you have to be heads down, you'll find you can turn on the same focus that you used to only be able to have turned on for you by the intense environment. You'll have access to yourself with some significant meditation practice or neurofeedback. All right, let's talk about those. Now, now that I've drilled the background down, like grounded down a thousand times, let's talk about the strategies that you use for retraining the brain. And neurofeedback is the number one thing that you're using, yes? It is. It's the fastest uh, approach for working on attention problems. It is uh, involuntary. So whether or not you want to do it, actually it works, which is kind of interesting. That means we can do it with uh, nonverbal children as well as teenagers who just don't want to be there. It still works. Um, How is that? And uh, Well, it's a process of operant conditioning, um, meaning shaping of the brain. And the way it works in terms of what you experience is you're sitting in a chair and we will measure your brain waves. Usually we stick a couple wires to your head for the training days. And we'll measure your brain waves moment to moment. So let me give you a concrete example. Um, we all have lots of brain waves and we make them all the time. Some of the things they're called are names like delta, alpha, theta, beta, etc. The amount of theta brain waves our brain is making moment to moment relative to the amount of beta, like the ratio of theta to beta is extremely highly correlated with executive function. In fact, you can blindly sort people into ADHD and non-ADHD buckets using the theta-beta ratio at rest of their brain with 94% accuracy. And the more Complete theta they have, sorting. the more ADHD they have. 
Exactly. The, le- the, the less easy it is to find the breaks and to inhibit and to be automatically you know, self-controlled. And the, and the more things are driven and a little bit reactive and noticing everything and bouncing around. So can uh, I feel if I'm sitting here now, can I tell like how can I tell what brain waves can I can I identify different waves in my head sitting here? You cannot okay. not not subjectively. Right. So so you can't feel what one individual set of tissues is doing for a couple of reasons. One is you don't have any sensory nerve endings in your brain. So the brain can't feel itself. Two, you, there's many, many billions of things going on, kind of like watching a giant symphony where each player is a, a spot of tissue generating brain activity. And there's millions of these players and you're the conductor or maybe you're the audience member in the symphony hearing the music, but you can't necessarily tell what each individual instrument is doing or each string on each instrument or each little tiny sub you know, sub note of each instrument. You just can't perceive things happening that way. And also they're happening in the order of, of, of milliseconds moment to moment. And so we can't perceive reality that fast. You know, we can only okay. really perceive about maybe 90 milliseconds. And these things are happening faster than that. Got it. Okay. So, so they come to you and you put electrodes on their brains. And then what? Yeah. So we actually start the process with an assessment called the brain map. Um, the, the map we also call a quantitative EEG. So you put a cap on your head, squirt it full of gel, have you sit with your eyes closed and open for several minutes each. We compare that data to a resting uh, database of several thousand people and see how weird your brain is. And then we look for these big statistical features, like if your theta-beta ratio is high, you probably have some executive function difficulty. And so we use the brain maps to generate hypotheses, not diagnoses. And we'll say things like, oh, hey, this uh, high theta-beta ratio often means that you have some difficulty with ADHD. Um, Is this true? Oh, Oh, it is true. Okay, great. Well, here's where it is. And so then when you come in for the training, which we call neurofeedback, um, we'll then stick just a couple of wires to your head and measure that theta-beta ratio. Now, it's not a static thing. So whenever it happens to shift in the right direction, so your theta drops a little bit, your beta rises a little bit, we will applaud the brain with audio and visual feedback. So like a car maybe runs faster on a track or music gets louder or a Pac-Man eats dots. And so over time, moment to moment, your brain is changing all by itself. And whenever it changes a little bit more in the right direction, we go, good job, brain, with more audio and visuals. And when it moves in the wrong direction, we withhold the input. And the brain goes, hey, wait a minute. I was watching that. Where's that input? And then the brain happens to move in the right direction sooner or later. And we applaud the brain with more input. And the brain learns from that. And we gradually move the goalposts every 30 seconds or so and shape the brain activity and gently exercise which brain waves are receiving input and move the goalposts a little bit further, a little bit further. And then the brain essentially got exercised very briefly, about half an hour of training. And over the next one to two days is a very gentle, subtle effect of having that brain wave exercised. And then you say, oh, hey, I noticed my attention did this, my stress did that. And you report in what, what you actually experienced. So two questions. One is, when I sit down in that chair, do I know that I'm going to want to try and you know, increase the number of polka dots that I'm seeing? Or do you just sit me down and just naturally it's like a mouse in a Skinner box and that they've just yeah. you know, figured it out? Pe- people do want to um, know, and so we often explain it, but it works whether or not you understand it. This is this is operant conditioning or Skinnerian conditioning, right. not Pavlovian, you know? So absolutely, we are taking and doing operant conditioning of involuntary brain waves. The process is involuntary. It was discovered on cats more than 50 years ago. 
and it works fine on people in coma, nonverbal children, et cetera. So this is not a voluntary process. And then it's, what's happening in the process? Are you increasing, like just shifting the ratio so my, I'm getting more beta waves working? Is that what's happening? Yeah. Example, like maybe I'm measuring your theta and your low beta. Whenever theta dips a little bit and high beta climbs a little bit in amplitude, a Pac-Man eats another dot or you get a chime happening on the screen or the car accelerates and hits more zombies or whatever it is. And then so you, you the, the well, it doesn't have to be. It can be whatever you want it to be. The stimulus has an impact. It can be an audio beep playing, just an audio yeah. beep. Your brain learns from it. The games, flying spaceships, yes. eating Pac-Man dots, hitting zombies, is for compliance. People actually will show up and enjoy it. Right. But it doesn't really matter what the, what the stimulus is in terms of the shaping. The brain would prefer input of stimulus over lack of input always. And so if we only applaud it for certain things it's doing, it does more of those particular things. So then eventually, so after uh, how many sessions does it take? And is this something that I we, have to continue to do forever? How does it? Yeah. You know, we typically do 40 sessions to begin, which is three times a week for about uh, three months. And that's enough training usually to make a very big change in ADHD and usually a pretty big permanent change. Um, some clients come back and do a fourth month of three times a week to get another, you know, either more effect or nail it down if it's wearing off a touch. But I tell people three to four months, you know, uh, somewhere in the 40 to 50 session range will usually... It, in a long-term way, get rid of executive function changes. In terms of the, um, the magnitude of change, we usually reassess your brain, of course, at the beginning, and then every 20 sessions of training. So we do at least three sets of assessments in a three-month program. We also measure your executive function, your ADHD-ness, using a computerized test. And in both the brain maps and the attention testing, we typically get a, a standard deviation of change every 20 to 25 sessions. So, so we get... Uh, so is this at the end of this, have I changed my mean state, my average state of how I function? And then do I know how to dial it up or dial it down so that if I am, um, you know, needing, if I'm in, you know, a pitcher in the baseball game, so now I really have to be able to, to focus and, you know, attend to all the things I need to attend to. Um, so is it, do they learn to dial it up and down or is it really just changing my mean state? Uh, you are absolutely changing the resources and how they rest as well as how they turned on or moved. So we're, we're changing the set, the, the sort of set state of being ADHD nest for you, but we're also building up or reducing any stuckness of those resources, finding ones that are weak and building and making them strong. So you have this ability to get total control over who you are. And, and unlike a medication where it feels like stuff's imposed on you from the outside, this just feels like you're getting it's easier to become yourself over time. And do they feel like as they're going through it, do they go, wow, this feels good? Or do they miss it? They do. The, yeah. Yeah. Most people will notice uh, about three to five sessions in um, that they are something shifting. Often the, the windshield wiper fairy creeps in or right. their sleep starts to change or their attention starts to change. Um, and so three to five sessions in, people start noticing it subjectively. And then they typically report back to us what's happening in their sleep, their stress, their mood, their attention as these things fluctuate gently. That tells us which protocols we are using, what's happening, what, what should be tried next. Right. And it's very iterative. We adjust based on what you're experiencing, push you a little harder, kind of like working with a high-end personal trainer where everything's just dialed in perfectly for you. Yeah. Um, and then we reassess your brain after six or seven weeks just to make sure that what you tell us has been happening what we think is happening is actually what's happening. Right. Um, and so you're feeling different. Usually by a month in, your sleep is dramatically different. Your ADHD is way significantly different. If you're profoundly ADHD and if you have a really resistant brain, and I would say about 10% of people move slowly, then maybe you're just starting to get effects about a month in. If you're very, very sensitive, 
you're getting really good effects a month in. And in the case of ADHD, one interesting feature is that you're also getting some uh, significant effect on medication. So all the dopaminergic medications people take um, produce tolerance. So you're taking Adderall, Ritalin, or anything else, Concerta, for months, you develop tolerance. One of the things that happens in the first month with neurofeedback is the tolerance to stimulants goes away. We wipe away your, your tolerance. The stimulants are working much, much better, first of all. And then as you, um, we make your dopamine system stronger, you need the meds less and less. So you first start noticing the meds hitting you really hard if you're taking them while you're training. And you have to kind of ramp them down as the uh, natural resources, so to speak, come up. And are doctors happy to work with you through this process? Some are. Yeah, some are. Therapists are extremely happy to work with us because they want to get the brain out of the way so therapy can happen. So they're extremely happy to have us help the, the person take care of their ADHD, their anxiety, whatever it is. Um, psychiatrists who primarily work with ADHD don't seem to be all that happy to work with us, mostly because they sort of view this as a phenomena to manage in the brain, not something to fix. And that's a, often the, the right. old school psychiatric perspective is, you know, the, the pill pad well, and it's a managing continuity. stuff long term. That's what we call a yeah. continuity in our business. So, I mean, that, 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 that happens, I think. I'm not sure that actually informs a lot of psychiatrists directly. There may be some, you know, sort of motivation there under the covers, but it does happen that, that psychiatrists don't love neurofeedback as much as, as, as master's level therapists do, who usually, once they find a good neurofeedback person, are extremely happy to get maps on all their clients to see if this is truly ADHD or anxiety stuff or if there's injuries or, well, I was you most, know. I was also mostly thinking about the importance of coordinating with whoever your prescribing doctor is for the medication. We always tell yeah. people, you know, you don't want to just stop a medication. You want to be sure that you do it under the guidance of whoever's yeah. responsible. And that's true. That's true here for us. You know, yeah. I'm not a medical doctor. I have a PhD in neuroscience, but I'm not your doctor in this role. I'm your coach, right. really. But psychostimulants are relatively forgiving for stopping and starting, unlike you know, antidepressants or something. So we have people um, do a 48-hour washout before their brain maps because the database of comparison is stimulant-free. But they can have whatever they want to have in their system the days they do neurofeedback. And as they start getting more infection of stimulant or they start getting, uh, you know, not needing medication, a lot of times people are already doing medication holidays on weekends or, or here and there and noticing that, oh, I forgot my meds today. I didn't actually get hyperactive. That was interesting. So it starts, the, the, the effects emerge and psychostimulants, are, again, are, are the kind of thing people can skip a day here and there. Uh, and so if they're concerned about ways to taper, I usually uh, invite their prescribing doctor to have a chat with me and I'll say, look, here's what we usually see. It's up to you guys to decide how to manage it, but here's what we usually see. Right. And I usually see people not going on their meds and doing neurofeedback instead and never needing meds or tapering their meds pretty consistently a couple of weeks in, going off their meds in the first few months and never needing them again for psychostimulants. It's almost always true. It's almost a natural It's not true. Yeah. And, and, and people know it because they, they, you know, they, they, they discover the meds hit them differently. They feel a bit different on them. It's a, it's a much more careful and complicated story when you talk about other things that are more long-term meds. Like I'm working with you on your depression. We absolutely need your prescribing doc involved and probably your therapist because I'm not, I'm not a, a psychologist here for you. I'm really just a brain coach. So, you know, for ADHD, it's almost purely physiological and much less psychological. It's, it's your brain, not your mind. That's ADHD. Yes. So I feel pretty comfortable working with your tissue and helping you work it out and get better. If there's meds on board, I'll tell you what I've often seen. It's up to you and your doctor to figure out a plan there. Um, but psychostimulants are relatively easy and innocuous to just stop cold. Got it. Okay. So, Let's you know. take a break. 
And we're going to come back and talk about the other biggest factor that you like to use with your patients, which is mindfulness. So we'll be back in just a second with Dr. Andrew Hill. I'm talking to Dr. Andrew Hill, one of the top brain performance coaches in the country, about the epidemic of attention deficit disorder. Staying focused in an increasingly frenetic world is just one of the many challenges facing our brains, as poor eating, sedentary lifestyle, and environmental influences increase the risk of depression, early onset dementia, memory loss and stroke, not to mention the impact of traumatic brain injury on our brain health. You don't have to succumb to these challenges. The editors of Bottom Line have created an encyclopedic volume of super brain boosting secrets that can improve brain performance and reduce the risk of memory loss. We think that dementia and memory issues are old age problems, but the damage actually begins decades before any symptoms are seen. Don't be a victim. Learn what leading researchers and experts are telling their patients about staying sharp. Bottom Line's Super Brain Boosting Secrets is just one of their many books on helping people create abundant health. Go to bottomlinestore.com forward slash boost to order your copy today and use the promo code podcast for 20% off. That's bottomlinestore.com forward slash boost to order Bottom Line's Super Brain Boosting Secrets today. All right, we're back with Dr. Andrew Hill, and we're talking about that you can actually retrain the ADHD brain, and it does not you do not have to be on a lifetime prescription of medication in order to be able to live successfully with ADHD. So we were just talking about neurofeedback training, and now there's a second piece, Andrew, to your program, which you really focus a lot on mindfulness and meditation. So let's talk about that piece. We do, yeah, thanks. So meditation um, and mindfulness are very similar. Um, meditation often is a cultural uh, definition, and, and what it means is a little bit different culture to culture, but broadly all forms of uh, what I call historical meditation will exercise executive function in some way, um, as will sort of modern mindfulness, and I will uh, uh, give you my definition, which is uh, mindfulness is paying attention in a particular way to the present moment with um, curiosity instead of judgment. So it's about the voluntary anchoring of your attention in some way. And if it's classic meditation, you know, you hear words like vipassana, samatha, metta, and those are often very mysterious and have mystery traditions uh, built around them to some extent. I think it's important just to demystify this stuff a little bit. Uh, vipassana, classic meditation, is simply... Um, present time awareness, you know, anchoring yourself in the stream of your experience and watching things, observing things flow by without being uh, stirred by them or having secondary thoughts from them, ideally. A uh, single point awareness would be anchoring your attention to some narrow stimulus and really packing your attention down. Uh, and then uh, metta, loving kindness, uh, essentially, is that heart-mind anchor, the noticing your emotions and how you're feeling. Um it uh, uh, doesn't really matter which of those you do, and there's other forms, of course, transcendental meditation, which is anchoring your, yourself to a, a mantra, a sound, a color, or something. In all these cases, there's a, a point of anchor, there's a point of directing your mind, and this, to a very large extent, builds executive function, and there's research showing that it offsets ADHD dramatically in several weeks, that lifelong it allows you to sidestep the normal sort of age-related cognitive declines and thinning that happens in the cortex. All of that is, is, is profoundly affected by meditation or mindfulness. And in all cases, it doesn't seem to matter what you're doing. This is not, you know, uh, rocket surgery. It's a basic set of techniques. 
And if you learn them and do them for 10 or 20 minutes a day, you seem to get all the benefits. So as a way of bringing this into peak brain, we, we, we do it a few different ways. Um, one is we provide free meditation classes uh, or mindfulness classes at the big centers. So Culver City and St. Louis both have several times a week free mindfulness. And in Los Angeles, at least, it's very difficult to find free meditation classes that don't cost, you know, $20, $30 a pop. So we offer uh, a kids group on Saturdays and adult groups on Sunday, Monday, and Wednesday in Culver City. St. Louis has a few groups as well. And these are completely wide open, community-based mindfulness instruction. There's no chanting, no incense, nothing to believe, just basic technique. Show up, sit down, learn some techniques, practice them for a few minutes, talk about them, practice some more. So it's basic sort of technology transmission almost, giving people some access. Um, we encourage people that do neurofeedback with us to also do mindfulness. And so this is one way of you know, providing the ability to uh, walk our talk, to provide some groups and some places to meditate because you know, it's much easier to meditate or do mindfulness with a group of people than it is without. If five minutes into a meditation session you want it to last 15 minutes, if your knee hurts and you're hungry, your phone rings and your kid's yelling at you at home, you know, you may not continue, but if you're bored and five minutes into a class in a group, you open your eyes because your knee hurts, your stomach's rumbling, you're a little bit, you know, tired and everyone else is still sitting still. Well, guess what? You close your eyes again and go back to meditating. So it, the social pressure should not be undervalued of, of meditating in a group. Um, so we provide that group, but then we also give all of our brain training clients private one-on-one -on -one meditation and mindfulness coaching every month. So most of our clients take advantage of this, the ones that are cognitively pretty typical or above average will take advantage of this um, sooner or later. And they learn to do some meditation, learn some directed practice, some specific exercises that fit their life, as well as get some coaching around ways of developing uh, a mindfulness practice long term. And this helps uh, people, to, again, develop more resources, but also develop the agency, the idea that they have control over their minds. And you, know, you don't have to do neurofeedback to get rid of your ADHD. You can just do lots and lots of mindfulness. Unfortunately, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem because if you have lots of ADHD, it's hard to direct your attention enough to do the meditation to get the benefits to get, you know, so it's a little, little, little hard to manage. And what's the mindfulness doing for the brain in terms of it's not it's not retraining. Is it just I'll call it taking it taking it out of gear, putting it in neutral for a bit? It's not actually. No. And, and many people think that you get meditation is blanking your mind. And often people think, you know, that that's the reason they can't do meditation. Oh, I can never get to a black man state. I can, I'm not very good at it, you know? And, and that's, I hear that you, me. but that's actually beside the point. Right. It's like, you know, going to the gym is not the act of being strong. Just like, you know, you, you go and you, and you move metal or you, you, you work out. Later on, you're stronger, hopefully. But going to the gym wasn't being strong. It was moving the resource. So meditating moves the resource. You anchor the executive function, the stuff in the front part of the brain. So it's that, learning to control that. So it's just getting experience of having that executive function controlled. Exactly. And there's different techniques for anchoring that attention, but it's all executive function training. If you keep doing it, the tone of that system comes up. And eventually there's a bit more of an inhibitory tone, a spaciousness, time between your thoughts, less reactivity. Not because you're trying to be that way, but because you've built a little more muscle and the system relaxes more profoundly because it doesn't have to be driven. So how important is it to have the same type of mindfulness practice on the same schedule versus there's, I call it a million different types of mindfulness. And sometimes I want to walk in the woods and sometimes I take 20 minutes and I meditate 
you know, in the morning or at night or whatever. So can it be any combination of whatever it is that gets me into that state of calm focus? It it can be, yes. And I would say that anything you're doing is good in that way. Um, The benefits don't seem to be about the type or the quality of what you're doing. They seem to be about the regularity. So if you're truly going to meditate, and, and I mean you're going to sit on a cushion, you're going to direct your attention, anchor it, practice, 10, 20, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day, every day, it doesn't matter how much you do, it matters that it's regular. And you'll build the same resource doing the same technique every day. So it's good to stick with something that feels like it's working for you. But if you don't feel like sitting on a cushion one day and you find yourself going for a long walk and being contemplative or mindful in your walk, great. You can, be, you can use mindfulness resources or skills or practice anywhere once you learn to do it. You can drop into mindfulness in the checkout counter at the supermarket because you have to wait there anyways. Maybe you're frustrated, notice your frustration, anchor your attention, let it go, be very mindful. I mean, you can do some interesting things off the cushion once you build some of the core resources. Um, the regularity of that practice is what is what matters, not what you do. Okay, yeah, I was actually just gonna ask you, can you, you know, I find in the middle of my day that I have to take a minute or two in between, you know, it's meeting, 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 someone's at my door, take a minute wherever in the middle of, of activity. Kid, you mm-hmm. know, do they need to take a break in the middle of class, too much going on, and just to go inside for a minute or two minutes to reset? I mean, that can help. And, and that, again, that gives people agency, the sense of, hey, look, I can change my state. I would argue that more importantly, you should be building the trait, building the resource and building control in general and the, and the sort of modes and tones of the whole system. Yeah, I wasn't and, saying instead of it. I mean, in addition, because mm, I got morning and night and then now here it is at two and in the afternoon and my head's going to explode. Certainly for kids or for those of us who aren't kids who have some difficulty with regulating, absolutely learning some of those tricks to regulate at that point would be really good. Um, I think that if you're doing it routinely and you're doing a lot of it, and you're you know, keeping your brain healthy, you know, this mental exercise you're doing routinely, then you won't need necessarily to uh, recharge or take breaks or cause state shifts if you're melting down because you actually will have a much greater capacity for you know, being a weeble wobble, springing back up right. right in your emotional stressors if you're used to practicing all these resources. You'll, you'll be more resilient, period over time. Got it. Okay. So what happens if somebody is not in the area where a Peak Brain Institute location is? Are there other places that other places where they can get neurofeedback training? What do they do? Yeah. So um, uh, certainly there's, you know, many practitioners in the country and I encourage folks if they're looking around to find someone that does brain mapping or quantitative EEG as a threshold for good work. Um, Peak Brain has five offices, four of them in Southern California and one in St. Louis. And we, of course, can work with you in those locations. For those people who want to work with us who can't uh, stay near a location, we offer a remote program or a home training program where you come to one of our offices for two or three days and we map your brain, teach you to apply the techniques to yourself and send you home with your own equipment and then do at least three months of supervision with you to make sure you're getting the most out of it and training your brain in the right direction. And at this point, we have a lot of success. You know, about a third of our clients are self-trainers or home trainers and can get just about the same effects, certainly on things like ADHD, sleep, stress, really the same effects you would get in the clinic. Um, and the nice thing about the self-trainers is the equipment we give you doesn't expire. You can share it with your family. And so uh, we end up getting a lot of, you know, sort of far-flung trainees who will be doing lots of great work and getting rid of their executive function difficulty, even if they aren't near an office. 
And then any of those self-trainers we encourage and we welcome to come back for more brain mapping to any of our centers without charge in the future. So we sort of want to be your brain gym and help you sort of weigh in and see where things are uh, whenever you like at that point. So. All right. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrew Hill, peakbraininstitute.com. My pleasure.